it can get quite cold in the winter in the south of Brazil, where I come from. Not, not Norway cold, uh, but still cold, quite cold. And, and the thing with the south of Brazil is that we don't have isolated and heated houses like we have here in Norway. So you have to find other ways of warming up. Yeah, so layers of clothes, uh, warm blankets, hot cocoa, other ways. And I remember that sometimes when it was particularly cold, my mom would iron our pajamas just before we put them on for going to bed so that they would be sort of warm and cozy when we snuggled in for the night. That's one of the things that I remember about winter there. And also there was the afternoon nap on a Saturday or Sunday in the winter. My parents' bedroom was by far the best place in the apartment that we lived in for an afternoon nap because that's where the sun would be shining in through the windows. So they, they had this long built desk running along the wall, on the wall, on the window, right? Running along the window. And then they had a bed in the middle of the room and they had this open space between the bed and the wardrobe. And that's where the sun would hit in this area, right? The desk, part of the bed and the floor. Those were the places that the sun would hit on an, on an, an early winter afternoon. And the whole family would flock there to lay down in the sun. Now, we're a family of six, right? So it would get quite crowded. My father would often lay on the desk, and I think that's because he would get the whole desk so he wouldn't have to have anybody by his side. And then the rest of us would sort of crowd on the foot of the bed and on the floor, sort of piled on each other, looking like a family of lizards laying in the sun. Now, why do we do that? Why did we do that? Well, because it was warm, of course, because it was warm. The windows would be closed to keep out the cold, but they wouldn't keep out the warmth, right? So that's where we would gather. That's where the light's warmth shined through the glass and gave warmth to our bodies. When warm light shines through glass, its properties don't stay on the outside. What we see on the inside is not a mere projection or a reference to the idea of the light. It is, in a sense, the light itself touching us, even if the light is somewhat transformed in the process of going through the window. Now, this seems obvious, right? It seems obvious, perhaps, to think of this property of the light when we visualize my family basking in the sun like Norwegians in a park, right? It seems obvious, but I don't think we always think of windows in that way, right? Our theme semester for, for this semester here in OIC has been stained glass, stained glass. And the metaphor that we're playing on is the kind of stained glass windows that we find in church buildings. And the thing with 
church-stained glass windows is that they often portray stories and symbols of the Christian faith, right? It's very common in churches where you have stained glass windows that they will show symbols of the Christian faith or sometimes stories, images, pictures, right? And these pictures are beautiful, beautifully crafted on these windows in their multiple hues of colors and shapes. And being windows, they are meant to have light shine through them. That's the point, right? It's only when the light shines through them that the contrast and the fullness of the colors really pop up and sort of project into the space within. So we've been asking, as we've been reflecting on this throughout the semester, we've been asking about what happens. What happens when the light of God, and especially when the light of the incarnated revelation in Christ, when that light shines through those windows on us as a community of faith, shines through those stories that we cherish as a community of faith, shine through those symbols that are part of our life as a community of faith shine through these images that we have in our Bibles or in our memories or in our songs? So that's the question that we've been dealing with. But here's what I realized when thinking about this metaphor this week. When I look at a stained glass window, when I look at a stained glass window, I am mostly attentive to what it shows me, right? What it tells me with the stories and the symbols and the beauty and the contrast and the contours and the colors. I may even be mesmerized by the colors cast on the floor as the light shines through. But I don't immediately think that it's not just a projection. Light has passed through the glass, actually passed through the glass. And if I sit there, if I sit there, it will not only show me something, it will touch me. It will touch me. It will change the temperature of my skin. And if I stay long enough, that warmth may even sink deeper. Today we start our Advent series, right? We lit the first candle here. Today we start our Advent series, and I've called it Through the Glass. Through the Glass. And it's about when we suddenly realize that the light has actually shined through the glass and is here. Not just projecting a story or something for me to look at, but touching my skin. What do we do when revelation suddenly not only informs, not only entertains or puzzles, but actually touches the reality of our lives. Today's story is about someone who was used to stained glass windows, but didn't see it coming when the light shining through them suddenly touched 
his own skin. And I want to read for you the story, and it's in the gospel according to Luke. And we're going to follow Luke throughout this series, the beginning and the first few chapters of Luke. And I want to read for you from Luke chapter 1, from verse 5 to 25. And this is the story. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless, because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Zechariah. Zechariah was a man of the temple, a priest, right? Stained glass windows were not really a thing at the temple in Jerusalem, right, and the temple he was used to, but he was a man who knew all the symbols and the stories of his faith. He knew, he knew them. He was around them and amongst them. But he didn't expect the touch on his own skin. 
He didn't expect revelation touching his own life. For all the religious surroundings and the fact that Zechariah was lighting up incense right before the curtain of the Holy of Holies, Zechariah did not expect the angel. He did not expect God to visit in this way or to speak so directly to him. Zechariah was startled and he was afraid. And honestly, wouldn't we be? I know I would jump off my shoes, right? Despite Zechariah being a priest and serving at the most holy place of his religious worldview, right? The place where God was understood to dwell in a special manner. Despite that, he was not expecting God to speak just then and in that way. And actually, I don't think it's a problem. I don't think it's a problem that Zechariah was startled. In a sense, I think it's proper and expected that he would react that way to the unexpectedness of God's visitation. And if we look at the story as Luke tells it, the angel himself does not seem to bother much. Right? He doesn't scold Zechariah for being startled. He just comforts him and tells him, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. But it's worth questioning ourselves why Zechariah got startled in the first place or why I might get startled if I were in his place. And I think that there are two reasons that we could get startled by God visiting, God intervening in history in such a direct way. One reason could be that we are startled because we didn't expect it to happen just then. Just then and there. That's one reason. The other reason is that we could be startled because we didn't expect it to happen at all. So either perhaps we didn't expect it to happen just then or we didn't expect it to happen at all. And the second reason, I believe, is by far the more dangerous one. It means that we either think that God does not exist at all or that God doesn't care at all, right? In Zechariah's case, being a priest in the temple, it would mean that his religiosity was thoroughly hypocritical, right? Which in the best case scenario is sad and in the worst case scenario is actually quite dangerous. And we see that playing out in the world all the time. But I don't think that that was Zechariah's case. I don't think, I don't think so. Because Luke tells us that he, that Zechariah was a righteous man, but not only that, he tells us that apparently Zechariah had an active relationship with God through prayer. So God wasn't just something he talked about or dealt professionally with. <laughs> he had a personal prayer relationship with God. So I, I believe that Zechariah's case was the first one which may be a healthy one. Because 
we should expect God to intervene in history if we believe that God loves and that God cares, but we shouldn't expect to control or predict how God does it or where God does it or when God does it. In other words, it may be proper that we're surprised when God intervenes and and being close to the idea that we would be surprised is actually being very arrogant, right? So it may be proper that we're surprised when God intervenes, but we shouldn't be surprised or skeptical that God does intervene. And that, that's a tough question, right? That's a tough thing to deal with because do we truly believe that God intervenes in history? That this light shining through is not just a projection of stories but can actually touch our skin? That God may choose even to visit us in the reality of our small and apparently not very significant lives? Because according to the narrative of the scripture and of what Luke is telling us and Zechariah is experiencing here, God not only visits, God comes truly close. He comes into. When Luke tells us the story of this unexpected revelation from God, Luke is very careful with giving us many details. Names of people and places and references of time, even descriptions of the struggle in the life of this elderly couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth, who never could have a child. And these details, they serve not only a storytelling purpose, even though Luke is a, is, is a very good storyteller, right? But they're not only serving a storytelling purpose, they're serving also a theological purpose. They are historical groundings of God's redeeming action. They're placing God's redeeming action in space and time. They are prevention against two pervasive tendencies in our human attempts of controlling God. There's two very common tendencies in our human attempts of controlling God. One is that we find human explanations for everything And that's the way of dismissing God's grace with human terms. So we find a way around it. We find human explanations. No, it was actually this, it was actually that. And we try to explain it in ways that we find that we can grasp. And in that way, we can dismiss God's grace on our own terms, on human terms. And the second tendency is similar but a bit different. And that is of conceptualizing acts of grace into abstract formulas, into symbolisms and images and abstract concepts, which is a way of diminishing God's grace with religious terms, which again is a way of controlling it with human terms, right? And the tendency is there, like the temptation is there. Can we find a human explanation or can we make this into just a story about and not a story of God in history. But Luke shows us how deeply into history and life God is willing to gracefully come. So he gives us these details and lets us know that this is not a case of marital unfaithfulness. 
It's interesting, right, that Luke gives these timing details. He says, after Zechariah came back home, Elizabeth got pregnant. And five months later, she came out. Oh, she was five months isolated. Then we have Mary. We're going to talk about that next week. Right? So he gives these little details. This is also not a theological construct. These were actually elderly people who shouldn't have been pregnant at this point. So this is about an old man sleeping with his old wife and her getting pregnant. Just like that. It's a wonderfully down-to-earth miracle. Wonderfully there. So here we have a God who does care and step into history to redeem. A God who is willing to come close even to our lives. But even as we find ourselves in the presence of such a God, his angel standing right before us announcing good news, we are still often left with what I have called Zechariah's conundrum. Listen again to the angel's greeting. He says, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your prayer has been heard. So Zechariah had been praying. By what we can gather from the way Luke tells the story, he has probably been praying his whole life, praying for God to give them a child, to bless them with Elizabeth becoming pregnant. And yet, when the angel tells him that just that which he had been praying for his entire life would happen, he struggles to believe. And that's the conundrum, right? And I don't want to be unfair to Zechariah because I think he has really good reasons to doubt. He has very good reasons to doubt. There's the fact that they are both way past the age of forbearing children. That's a good reason to doubt. And also, perhaps more painful, there's his long life of unanswered prayer. This isn't a new prayer, God. Like, this doesn't make any sense. Why didn't God answer when Elizabeth was, was younger? And this would have made sense. Is this a joke, God? I've been praying for this my whole life. Now that it's not even possible, you're telling me it's going to happen? He had reasons to doubt. But there's another question, right? There's another question. And the other question is what reasons did he have to believe? What reasons did he have to believe? There is an angel of the Lord right before him telling him that it would be so. But again, more than that, there is his lifelong faith that this God he served was able of mighty deeds. This was the whole thing of the festivals that he was part of in the temple. To celebrate a God who was able of mighty deeds, a God that was creator and a God that was redeemer. So perhaps in the end, 
It's a matter of focus and a matter of trust, right? What would Zechariah choose to focus? On God or on himself? And I cannot know what went through Zechariah's head and heart that day. All we have is Luke telling the story, right? I don't know. Maybe after all those years, he was still asking, right? He was still praying. But he was asking for something he didn't truly believe might happen. Because every time he looked at the odds, they were thinner and thinner and thinner as his age went by. As he looked at his own limitations and the limitations of time around him, he might have become discouraged. And if I'm honest, that's me. I recognize myself here. How many times do I ask God for things I don't truly believe might happen? And this comes in different ways and formats, right? Sometimes these cries to God, they're just shouts of despair, right? And God has mercy and and grace. Sometimes they're just exercises of empty religiosity. It's easy to fall into that, isn't it? I'm, I'm praying, but I'm really operating on the understanding that I have to do it myself. But I mean, I should pray, right? I look at the stained glass window and I deeply appreciate it. But I don't really expect it to warm me up in the cold winter. I need jackets for that or I got to figure it out. But maybe Zechariah also at some level knew what it would mean to focus on God. And if Zechariah didn't know it then, he certainly learned it over the years that followed. Looking at God rather than ourselves enables us to have faith. But having to focus on God means much more than believing the miracle. It means surrender to God's purposes and to God's way of doing things. And Zechariah and Elizabeth, they were not only getting a son. They were getting John. They were getting a son who had a calling in the line of the prophets. Spirit of Elijah. Take a read at Elijah's life and the life of the prophets. Trusting God and having faith is not only about believing the miracle, but it means surrendering to God's way of being in the world. It's not just about having our skins touched, but about the warmth in us being the warmth of the Spirit and the way the Spirit operates in the world. 
John was a miracle, but not for them. Not for them alone. John was for the world. John was for the service. John was for the grace and he was for the beating. John would change everything in Zechariah's life and in Elizabeth's life. What will it do to us? the light of Christ that shines through these stories, through these symbols, touches our skin and warms us with the light of the Spirit? What does it mean to believe that God acts in history, even in mine, but for that faith to mean that I surrender to God's purposes and God's ways of being in the world? Are we willing to believe when believe means showing us the world and our place in it through God's perspective? When it means that what we get is not our own and not for ourselves, but for the world that God loves, loves enough to be in it, to touch it. Perhaps that's a part of our struggle to believe that God intervenes in history. It is our struggle to be part of God intervening in history. To be the ones in the line of the prophets. But if we believe that the light of the world came into the darkness, the darkness did not recognize it, but it shined all the more and called his own to him, and that the light shines on this day in the darkness where we live. Then perhaps that means we need to step into it. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you. May he be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you. And may he give you his peace. So go in the peace and the light of our Lord Jesus Christ. And serve the world and serve the Lord joyfully. Have a great week, everyone. You're very welcome to stay for church coffee. We can just move into the hall in the back there uh, so that the kids can use this space up here. Have a great week.
Hope to see you soon.